Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Data doesn't matter by itself. Its value is relative to what else you're going to do with it. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Kila. Today, I'm interviewing Tim Lockie. Tim's expertise lies in the intricate relationship between data, technology, and human behavior. As the founder of Now It Matters and the creator of The Human Stack, Tim has demonstrated a strong commitment to helping nonprofit leaders harness the power of data and humans to make informed decisions. There is so much to learn from Tim's unique perspective and extensive knowledge in the world of data and team management. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the intersection of data, technology, and humans and discussing the relationship between the data in our head and the data in our computers or our software. This episode is full of so much great information and insight. So let's dive in so you can meet Tim. Welcome everyone. I am so excited to be here today with my friend, Tim Lockie. Tim, welcome to What the Fundraising. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I'm really excited for our conversation today. Let's start with you just giving a little intro to yourself and your work, and then we will dive right in. My name is Tim Lockie. I live here in Bozeman, Montana. I've been part of nonprofits since I was 18 years old, which is a long time. That's over three decades now. And I have been best at the data and the technology and the humans. And so I find a a niche there. I started Now It Matters, which was a consulting firm, and I ran that for a long time. And in 2019, I went to a conference and somebody put up a slide that said 90% of organizations collect data, but only 5% use that data to make decisions. And it just broke me. It just made me question what I was doing, why I was doing it. And so I spent the last half of that year asking if the goal was to help organizations use data to make decisions, would I do the work I do the same way? And the answer was not at all. I would do it very differently. So I built that way of doing it. And then found out nobody cared. So I spent the last few years learning to talk about it so that people understand what it is I offer. If you don't mind, I'll give you like when I finally got it to pass a mom test and I was like, okay, now I, she gets it. This is what I said. Okay. So I said, imagine that Salesforce, Blackbot, Microsoft, whatever, imagine that they're like a car manufacturer in my business. Now it matters is like a car dealership and nonprofits come and they order a CRM car from us for fundraising so that they know how to raise funds from us. And they need special things like donor advised lighting and soft credit tow package and all these bells and whistles. And we get it all set up for them. And then we give them the keys and they don't know how to drive it. And this happens over and over and over. And I finally realized we are good at building cars and we are good at selling cars and we don't know how to teach people how to drive cars that are CRM. And so I started a brand called The Human Stack, which is focused on how you help humans use technology. 
Okay. I love that. And there's so much synergy in our work and overlap in the way that we think about peopling and digesting complicated matters in more human ways. And I want to talk today about data specifically. And so I love that you started with that story around 90% of organizations are collecting data, only 5% of organizations are using data. And from what I see in my non-tech perch, is tremendous amount of fear around data and a lot of fear around how good their data is, their data not being good enough, clean enough, anything enough. And then the level of overwhelm they feel because of the distance they feel like they are between where their data should be and where it is, that gap feels so big that my guess is they keep collecting the data but they aren't starting to progress in any way towards using the data. And that gap just continues to grow and grow and grow. Does that feel similar to what you see? Absolutely. And I'll take that one step further and say, they don't end up just feeling like the data isn't good enough. They end up feeling like they aren't good enough. And I think a lot of times, especially with AI emerging, what are the differences between humans and technology And in my world, information systems are half human and half technology. And so, yeah, I think people end up judging themselves really harshly because the data isn't good enough and they feel like they aren't good enough. And so I think that it's a huge problem. And when you feel that way about something, you lean away from it. And it's already hard to lean into it in large data systems, and I can go into why, there are practical reasons why, but it doesn't matter because once you are leaning away from something and slightly avoidant, anything else seems like it could be a better use of your time at the moment that you make decisions about what to do with your time. And so data never wins out. So in some ways it's weird. I am very human centric about this, but I also feel like the Lorax that speaks for the data, like that's (laughs) the other half of my job is to be like the data advocate. Like, no, if you do this, it will help you in the future. And, and data is an ecosystem. It's not just data or datum. By the way, did you know that data is plural for something called datum, which I keep relearning about every five years. Yeah, data is plural. So when you listen to data scientists, they say these are the data and they sound like nerds. They're technically correct. They just don't seem like it. And so datum is like you see the number 14 in a spreadsheet cell and that's it. All you see is 14. That's a datum. And if you saw like a couple of those, those would just be data. And then if you could see the top row and it said day of month, now you've got information. And so. Interesting. Well, I'm going to take you back a little bit because I want to just define, and maybe the answer here is that there is no definition, but we hear all over our sector, you need clean data. And we see all of these CRM companies talking about that value out of their CRM system being data hygiene, that they help keep your data clean. And so then I think there's this idea of like, oh, we need clean data, but there's no real understanding around like what clean data means. And the fact of the matter is there's always going to be imperfections in our data for whatever reason, because there's been data transfer, because people have input data incorrectly, because the donor input their own data incorrectly. Like this just happened to me where I input my email address wrong into something, didn't get the confirmation thing, was so confused. And I just like added a random R and I didn't catch it. And so the data is always imperfect, but then we have this 
system around us telling us to have clean data. And I feel like we have no definition for clean data. So like if you were going to look at an organization and to evaluate whether or not their data was clean, what would you be looking for and what would indicate to you that it's clean enough versus that they need to do work around their data? I love that question. There are two answers to it. First is data doesn't matter by itself. Who cares? If you just have a pile of data in the back, it doesn't matter. So having clean data is important only in what else it lets you do. And so when I spent a half a year looking at the disconnect between having data that you collected and making decisions with that data, one of the things that it led me to was a theory of change that is really simple. And it just says data becomes information. So information is just data with context and meaning in it. And information becomes insight. And what actually matters for organizations is insight, the ability to decide things or know things and knowing things is the information layer. So data is the foundation of your ability to extract meaning and to make decisions from it. And both of those are really crucial in organizations that are working collectively. I just want to be really clear. It is not its own outcome. Its value is relative to what else you're going to do with it. Okay, wait, can I push you here with a specific example? How would you then define or explain if an organization was like, okay, but let's think about like lifetime giving, for example. So let's say they're on a CRM that allows for an automation where lifetime giving can be an automatically entered field from the donor record account. But they're concerned about the integrity of their lifetime giving data inside their system. So they never use that automation. How does that fit into this explanation? What I would say on that is that, I mean, this is such a great Schrodinger's cat because we don't know if the data is correct or not. What we know is that you don't know that it is correct, which means you won't use it. So the answer to your question, how do I decide if data is clean enough? I say, do you trust your data? All I'm actually after is their perception of their data. And people do not overestimate the data quality. That's not the trajectory. The trajectory is almost always to underappreciate or think that it's worse, if anything. And so they're going to give you an answer about their perception, and they're going to behave based on their perception and emotions to their data rather than just how quality the data is. So when I do an assessment, literally, like there are six questions I ask to know about an organization's digital health. The second question is, do you trust your data? Then scale of one to 10. And I look at that across an entire organization. And what you see is you sometimes see a big range, but oftentimes it's pretty dialed in on what people think of their data. And you're exactly right. I think your instinct is if you don't trust your data, you don't use your data. And that is the main reason that people collect data and don't make decisions on it. They've seen how they collect that data and they don't see how they are refining and getting that data to be more higher quality over time. And lifetime giving is a great example That is a chain of transactions that have to be correct and the aggregation of them has to be correct. And then you've got soft credits in there. Does it include household giving? Does it include fee for service? Did they make sure that they were extracting that out of it? So lifetime giving is a great example of perception, aggregation, calculation. So all of those things are at play. 
So this is interesting. So then does this mean that what you need to work with organizations around is actually collecting cleaner data or what you need to work with organizations around is building trust and a relationship between them and their data? Yeah, both of those things. So data that you have is always backwards facing. If you have the data, like whatever process you had to get that data is done. So all of your existing data has to be back facing, like you're going to fix it. If you want to fix future data, you do that with process. So the methodology I created called digital guidance, it does two basic actions for organizations. And we teach them how to do this sustainably as a team. And the two things are clean up a non-zero amount of data, record your results, and set a target for it. So that's one action. And the second action is that complaining is a sign of hope. So we want to get people complaining about their system. So that's to the users. We just want them to think that way. I teach people that are working in the system. Sometimes that's fundraisers. Sometimes that's somebody else. How to manage those two loops with a high amount of rigor. And so you have to do both of those things to collect the data because you have to actually fix the accuracy of the empirical data that you have, and you have to repair your relationship to your data. And you do that by repairing your relationships to the other people using the data. So it starts with human relationships first. Okay. So I want to go there in a second, but is it ever true that people don't trust their data, but their data really is good enough? Now, it doesn't mean that they don't need or couldn't have improvement in the future. But like, is the level of fear and distrust that people have equivalent to the messiness of the data itself? Because I guess what I see is like, when there is this lack of trust around their data, there's complete shutdown, as opposed to being like, okay, we have this database, we've been collecting data in it for a long time. And we haven't even parsed out what we trust and don't trust. Like, okay, like we can trust actually that the mailing addresses have a 95% accuracy because every time we get bounce back mail every year, we go and we update that in the system. We do our best to find a new mailing address. And so we feel actually like our mailing addresses are pretty good. But for example, lifetime giving data doesn't feel very clear because I think we've changed our rules around soft credits in the middle of using this platform. But they have this sort of blanket relationship to data saying they distrust it that isn't necessarily calibrated against how trustworthy their data is overall. Is that true? It is, and I would add two other elements to it. One is that there's another piece of emotion happening that's, I don't know if it's trauma because I never really know what trauma is. We just use it a lot now. But there is something like that in the unpredictability of finding out later on that something happened. So a good example here, you have a 95% accuracy rate on your direct mail, right? If one of the 5% that's not accurate is the name of a major donor who is recently deceased, that is not an equivalent problem to like we've got the zip code wrong for somebody. And so there's a realism to what we don't know and what we haven't thought about that is going to affect us negatively. And then I've written the deceased protocol on these things, and it is complicated. There is a lot to it, and you have to follow every step for it to go well. So there is actually an element of unpredictability that life is stochastic, 
and that the effects of a small mistake can be massive. And it is that not all problems are equivalent. And because data starts to feel like a monolith, and this is maybe it's because I studied econometrics or just because I'm natural. I don't know what it is, but to me, and I think to you too, you look at data as a vector image, not a PDF flat image, right? Like you look at the lines and contours and you think about which data matters more. And what I found is that one of the most important trainings I give to people is when you're starting to fix data, we're going to start with financial, not fundraising, but financial data, and then contact data, then fundraising data, then campaign marketing data. So there's an order of priority to that. And then there's also an order to recency. So data from six months ago is probably more valuable than data five years ago, right? So there's that element to it. And then another one is size. Like if you have limited time and you're changing a non-zero amount of records, and that means that you're going to be able to spend three hours this month on fixing data, then probably it would be better to spend that time fixing your most recent big donations over $10,000 over going back to year one of your organization and fixing those transactions. And that's just not obvious to everybody. And I mean, after I say it, they're like, oh yeah, of course. And so it's really freeing and really helpful. But I think that part of it is just breaking that down. But if we have a wall of fear between us and our data, it's really hard to think of it that specifically. And especially if we feel like we're the reason the data is bad. And so we're bad if our data is bad. Like the emotions continue to play into this in important ways. One thing that I love was that comparison between understanding which of your data is like the highest stakes and most impactful and starting there, likely as opposed to the data you have the most fear around. Like when I think about the oldest data, that's probably the stuff they're actually the most worried about. And it's actually the least impactful. And so I think that's such a good suggestion. And so for folks who can't work with you and don't have a team, maybe can't necessarily use all of the strategies around cleaning up their data. First, let's define like how much time you feel like people need in order to clean up their data, in order to make progress towards feeling more confident with their data. And then the thing I want to talk about next is like, I posted something today about imposter syndrome around how you can't solve imposter syndrome with more learning. Like people think, oh, imposter syndrome will go away when I'm trained on this or when I have experience with this or when I learn this thing. And it's like imposter syndrome is not an ability issue. It's a motivation issue. It's a fear issue. And so you actually have to address the imposter syndrome directly in order to deal with it. And there's something that feels really similar here where like, yes, there's this like data hygiene, clean data piece, but also there's like, if you don't change your data at all, it sounds to me like there's work that can be done around building trust with your data that allows you to use what you have, maybe absent of any like egregious actual data issues. Yeah. Here's where I'm going to start with that. And you're the reason I thought of this. And I feel like I should have realized this years ago, in every organization, almost every organization in the entire world does one data cleaning action every month that is invisible and we don't even think about it, which is bank reconciliation. Every month, that is a data quality action that is assumed it's being done. If that's not being done, heads roll. It is just part of what happens. And it's not a coincidence 
that in almost every organization, the cleanest data comes from the finance team. They've often like barricaded their system away from any kind of integration. And that is a practical thing. I used to be like the anti-silo, like breakthrough guy. And I think what I've realized is, no, let's be really cautious because that is really clean data. And part of the reason for that is that in answer to your question for organizations, it is a non-zero amount every month because they're at least doing that. And they don't even think of that as a chore. It's just what happens, right? That is the mindset that I want to introduce here, which is it can't be everything. And so don't let it be. And what I introduce is a five-step really simple plan where you identify errors and you list them out over time. So you list them and then you put those on a list. It's reports on, on a list. You know, like here's some data that we need to clean up. And we've got a number of records that are incorrect. Because if data can tell you the truth, it can tell you a lie. And if you can report on that, then you can know. Like there's 75 of these major donor records that aren't correct. And once you've got 75 incorrect data, then all I want to do is see every organization create a non-zero goal for that. Okay, we've got 75. At the end of the month, I want 74. If that's the goal, I'm happy with it. Change one record as far as I'm concerned. But don't let it be zero. And that's the only message I want to put out there on that. You need to adjust your level of how much data you're going to clean up based on your workload. And in December, it probably should just be one record. And in January, it should be a lot because of year-end crazy, actually maybe February. So my point is that we need to have a system so that we can relax or we never will. And B, it is not a number of records. It is more about the amount of energy you give it. And you give it more when you've got more. You give it less when you've got less. And you just set the target so that it is reasonable for the month that you're in. And then the last thing is that you report on it. And the reason for that is that until you create a visible amount of accountability in a cycle, humans won't trust it. Our perception is not based on accuracy, like you were pointing out. And we have this amazing thing in us where collectively we grade ourselves on the trend. So when we as an organization feel like we're moving towards something, we feel like it's already there. So in order to fix the perception of bad data, all you have to do is show everybody that you're doing something about it. And that starts a reversal long before you fixed all the records. So what you're telling me is that in order for us to feel like our data is clean enough, the enoughness actually comes from just consistently in small steps working on our data. Yep. And it becomes really possible at that point. What I'm saying is clean enough. Here's the other piece of that, though. If you know as a leader, you've got a non-zero amount of data that's getting fixed, suddenly you care about what that data is. If you want insight and you can't get it because the information is lacking because the data is incorrect, you as a leader, if you know that this is something that's getting done out there, you can backtrack that to start prioritizing that. Okay, hey, what matters to me most right now is that our fund numbers are not aligned between QuickBooks and our CRM. And so when we're doing receivables, I have no way of knowing what our forecast is for the next quarter because one is a name field and the other is a, a number field. So we need to actually focus on aligning those and reconciling those against each other so that I feel more confident about the forecast. And so, okay, month one, they do 20%. Month two, they had a lot more time, they do 80%. 
month three, they start to work with the executive director and saying, okay, now we've got this. How do you feel about that? And it does a couple of things. One is their work incrementally becomes visible. And the non-promotable work piece of this is really important to understand. And secondly, there's now a team group effort on this. So it's not just up to one person. And third is receiving accountability or hierarchical attention, which is really important to move things forward. And so people feel like somebody upstairs is going to notice if I actually get this work done. So I'm more likely to do it. It's all of those things together that starts to shift that perspective. And then you feel like we as an organization can do this. It's like organizational imposter syndrome, to your point. And so when organizations feel like, no, we can succeed at this, we don't need a whole IT team in order to do this. We can do it at the size of organization that we're at. It really starts to shift the conversation. Mm. First T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First T of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First T of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Before we hit record, I was saying like the theme of what I wanted to talk about today was like the relationship between the data in our head and the data in our tech. But I think what you're making me think about right now is the fact that the data is really just in our tech. The insight is in our head. And what we have, I think, long assumed as nonprofit leaders, or maybe not, maybe assumed is the wrong word, but I'll just speak for myself. I think as a nonprofit leader, I did not give a lot of time and energy to the data because to me, that was like, that's a machine process. And so I didn't really think about, and we've talked about this before, how little time is given often to tech implementation, for example, as if because the way the tech is marketed to us as something that's going to save us time, we don't actually factor in the way in which the tech should actually also take our time and not necessarily always take our time from a data perspective, although a little bit to the points that you're making around consistently interacting with our data. But the reason why this technology should impact our time is because the uniquely human element of this is the insight. And so if we can sort of reorient the way we think about our relationship, that like these tools are not just here to create a frictionless giving process. Like, yes, there are ways that it should do those things, but especially when we're talking about the data it ultimately reports for us, the way that impacts our work or should impact our work on a daily basis, we should be expecting to give time to that. Absolutely. And it is an investment, right? So that is exactly what I'm wanting more people to understand is that it goes back to information systems are half human and have technology. And so if I were to parse that into this conversation, what I would say is that data is what you give a system and information is what it gives back to you. And insight is what you do with that. 
And so at one point charted out some of this where it was like data to information is a tech to tech transaction. Information to insight is a tech to human transaction. This is where it gets really interesting. Insight to story is the human human action. So the next layer of this really does get back to how do machines talk to each other is through data. How humans talk to each other is through story. And one of my biggest aha moments and the reason that I branded the human stack as the human stack was because there are actually different stacks. One looks at zeros and ones in a binary situation, calculates for true, false, and that's technology. And everything's just a big nested if statement. But humans, that is not our core base code. Our core base code is belonging. Are we in or out is our binary. And so we actually have to look at the way that we use information systems through our base code. And story is the best conveyance of that. And the reason for that is that it actually goes, data becomes information, information becomes insight, insight becomes story. And story is what helps us to understand belonging and context. One of the pieces that I'm really, and I don't even think I have the words to like accurately describe this, but I think when I've been banging my head against the wall around like what is clean enough data, I have been trying to get my brain to understand the data. And I think what you're pushing me to realize is that our brains are not designed to hold the data, to fully understand the data. The only question for us is, can we have gain valuable insights and use them from the information that the data produces? And if the answer is no, then that gives us some inclination. And then we can ask why, like which parts of our data are not producing the information that allow us to pull the insights we need. Then that gives you a direct line to like, where is the data not clean enough? And instead of just feeling like, oh, like it's a mess in there, we can actually say like, okay, that gives us some targeted direction. And it's not, oh, it's just a big old mess in there. It's like there is a strategic and important element to that data that is not serving you. And if you can dive in there first and start interacting with that piece and cleaning up that piece, that's going to also build your trust and relationship with your data overall. Am I like summarizing this aligned with what you're saying? You are. I love that that's what you're thinking about. And it's like causing all of these other like big conversations that I would love to have with you in the future or something. But yes, in general, yes, that's exactly right. There's a another element to this that I think is really important around digital maturity and digital literacy that we're not going to get into, but I do care about that a lot. And then I think one of the place this came home to me is when I was working with a brand that was creating AI for fundraising. And they were telling me the issue here is that it does more than our customers even expect, but only if the data is good. And I think that is actually a really good line in the sand. Could AI use your data? Because they come at your data impassionately to create decisions for you. Like the point of AI is to create information from it. With generative AI, there's an option now that's emerging of skipping the information and going straight to your questions from the data, which I think is very interesting. So has a whole other world of conversation. But the big myth I want to take on right now is that there is a size of organization that this works for and a size that it doesn't. And what I want to say is I started Digital Drivers Ed, and you know why, because I just talked about that, 
digital driver's ed for small teams because I was listening to my dad and he learned to drive at six years old. And my grandpa was like, there's the steering wheel and there's the brakes and don't let it go over five miles an hour. And there's the cows, go get the cows, get them to the barn. And when we're done milking them, take them back. Like my dad didn't learn parallel parking or how many feet from the next car, whatever, none of that, right? Because it's all city driving. All of the tech maintenance protocols that technology has put out there, which mostly don't work, by the way, but even if they did, the ones that are out there are all city driving, continuous improvement, DevOps, governance, adoption, all that stuff is city driving level. And what I realized is it doesn't need to be that high level. So I just took my methodology and pulled all of all of the city driving out of it to make it condensed enough for really small teams, five to 15 staff to be able to manage their technology well enough to be able to create that data because you don't know which data you're going to need in the future and it is compounding interest on value. And so if you stop tracking it for a season, that becomes problematic when you want to go use it later on. And this is what keeps kicking people back in to keep collecting it. It's not just habit. It's also, if there's a gap, it's almost all unuseful because you need that gap to create the patterns. I appreciate that. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm just thinking for the folks who are listening to this show who are fundraisers who may not be supported in their role to give any time to this, but feel overwhelmed by their data and want to improve their relationship to their data without being able to get their whole team to adopt a process like this. What's one tiny thing they could do in their silo every day, every week or whatever that would start to decrease their overwhelm and improve their motivation to use their data? One, find out what you're curious about. If it's just you and you're not going to focus on the rest of the team, then find out what you're curious about. Now, you might be curious about it because somebody else on the team is like, where's my number for this? So that'll generate curiosity, but it also might just be an eight, okay? Find something that you're curious about. Find out why you can't know about that. Create the report that would help you if you could have it. If you need to do that in a spreadsheet, fine, do it. And then work from there to go set that up in the system to track it. And if you need to fix past data in order to make that happen, then invest that amount of time. So my main advice there is get an outcome that you're curious about and connect that to the habit. And then for six weeks, just say two hours a week, I'm just going to work on this and make that a little carve out a little time. Don't make it everything. And if it's not even that much, if it's just a half hour, fine. Just create a regular time where you just focus on that for a little bit and you'll start to feel better about it because you're doing something about it. And then maybe the one tip I would add on top of that, I love that, is to be aware of the thoughts and the way that you talk to yourself while you're doing that 30 minutes. Because I think I've said this to you before, like I realize there's so many numbers that when I've been afraid to look at them, it's not because the number, the number is just the number. But the moment I see that number, for whatever reason, a conversion rate, an unsubscribe rate or whatever, it's what harms us are the thoughts and the beliefs that come up immediately. Oh my gosh, they hated that email or, oh my gosh, they must be so mad at me because, and so there are all these narratives that immediately come into our minds around the numbers that we see. And so for folks who are starting to give themselves those 30 minutes, like, 
we don't want to do any activities where we're beating ourselves up the whole time yes. we're doing them. Like I've noticed that with like exercising, like why do I like some forms of exercise and not others? Oh my gosh, I'm so much meaner to myself during some forms of exercise than I am during others. No wonder I hate doing them. So I think for folks to like bring that level of awareness, I love that advice. Any final things you want to make sure you leave folks with? I hope that they can drop the data shame. If you need permission from me, find me on LinkedIn and I will give you permission to drop the data shame. Like this is not a moral thing. It is not immoral to have some bad data or a lot of bad data and to know about it and not get to it. None of that is like there are far more important things going on in the world. And this is what I think about all the time every day. And I'm saying it, I'm an expert in this and I'm saying that. So if we could just help people not feel so bad, I would be so happy about that. Thank you. That's the perfect thing to end on. Okay. We'll make sure that all the links are below to your LinkedIn, to where they can learn more about the human stack, digital drivers, Ed, all the things. Thank you so much for spending this time with me today. Thank you for caring about this so much. It makes me like really happy that someone just is like, yeah, this does matter. So yeah, thank you. Okay, there are so many things that are swirling around in my head from this episode, but here are a few of the top things that I'm thinking about right now. Number one, assess your organization's relationship with data by asking the question, do you trust your data? Maybe give it on a scale of one to 10. Number two, if that trust is low, work on repairing your relationship with your data by focusing on human relationships first, especially with your team. Number three, Evaluate the quality of your existing data by looking at accuracy and the processes used to collect it and work on improving those processes slowly but surely. It does not need to happen all at once. Number four, I loved what Tim said about encouraging complaints about your data system and using it as a sign of hope, as an indicator that people are engaged and want the systems to be better. Number five, Set specific targets for data cleanup and make it a regular part of your organization's operations. Ambiguity around clean data really hinders our progress towards cleaning things up and making them better. Number six, prioritize the data that matters most to your organization and focus on improving the quality of that data first. And lastly, number seven, remember that having clean data is not an end goal, but a means to gaining insights and making better decisions for your organization. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You'll also find more information there about Tim and our amazing sponsors, Keela. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you in the next episode of this incredible mini series.
Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.